Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Erased Americans. This is episode 98, and we are so glad that you are here. And we wish you, we always wish you health and happiness and safety on the show. That's taken a, a different meaning in additional context uh, the last few weeks. For some of you and some others, this is a reality that we've been dealing with for a very long time. Thanks to uh, the rhetoric of national leaders, thanks to a segment of our population who does not think that it is hurtful to use certain words. We have experienced, not only seen, but have personally experienced in our own lives, in our own communities, a rise in uh, hateful rhetoric and sometimes even violence um, and death. And so, you know, for, for me to wish you health and safety now, it just takes on a whole new different meaning. So um, please keep yourself safe. I just read a story about a U.S. veteran here in Los Angeles in Koreatown, a very young, healthy Somebody I actually wouldn't want to mess with on the street if I saw him, he got slurs thrown at and he got beat up. And so everybody, please keep your eyes up, eyes off your phones, especially when you're in public. Uh, don't travel alone. And then we will hopefully get through these challenging times together. But before any of this stuff, I just want to uh, say that to everybody as, as we enter um, almost one year of being at home and uh, trying to deal with this pandemic. One of the most exciting Instagram accounts, and I don't want to say it's just an Instagram account, but the voices in our universe uh, that have excited me, that have fired me up uh, in recent times is Teach and Transform. And to be honest, when I discovered the account, I had no context of who was behind the account. It was just being widely shared with just well-researched nuggets of facts and history and everything. And come to find out that it was a Korean-American woman named Liz Kleinrock behind it gave me extra joy. And to give you a little bit of secret behind the scenes, we went from DM to recording in under 24 hours for this particular episode. So, so excited to share our conversation together today. Welcome, Liz, to the show. Thank you so much, Jerry. It's great to be here. I'm so glad we got to connect. I, you know, I'm so glad that we did. As I shared before we started recording, I spent the last couple hours watching everything you created, all the videos, your, your award. Uh, for teaching tolerance, your uh, TED Talk video, actual TED Talk, which is a big, big deal, your documentary called Miss Liz's Allies, which featured the story of your uh, fourth grade class from the 16 to 17 year at a charter school here very close to me in, in Los Angeles at Citizens of the World. And it actually is really poetic to me that somebody who's doing, like teaching the public about all this stuff today is a teacher, a, a very well-respected and uh, a celebrated teacher who's been teaching these concepts to our kids for a very long time because you almost, I don't know, to, to teach adults these things must be frustrating. To teach these things to kids must be heartwarming because they just soak it up. But we, we're going to get to all of that, but we first want to learn about Liz and, and her story um, to help us get a better understanding of how she became uh, the hero that we see her as today. And, and so, Liz, tell us about your journey. How did you end up becoming a Korean-American and under what circumstance and then what you remember about your early days here? Sure. Gosh, thank you for that introduction. That was so nice. <laughs> um, okay, so my name is Liz Kleinrock. My pronouns are she and her. Um, I am coming to you from unceded Piscataway and Pamunkey land, um, which is known as the D.C. area. Um Let's see, how did I become Korean American? I identify as a transracial adoptee. So I was born in South Korea, 
Um, I lived there in a foster home for about six months before I was adopted and brought to the United States. Um, I grew up here in DC. Um, my, I'm an only child. My parents are Ashkenazi Jewish. So I was the only person of color in my um, entire extended family growing up. Um, and being the only person of color, being the only Asian American in my family, really in my neighborhood, um, I went to school with a handful of other Asian students, um, but didn't really spend a lot of time unpacking that part of my identity until I got a little bit older. Um, it was just kind of tough when there aren't people who look like you, who you really identify with, like in your immediate community growing up. And we certainly don't have the same amount of representation and like diverse literature um, that we did back days. So yeah, it's definitely been a journey and figuring out how to navigate all sorts of imposter syndrome and reclaiming like what does it mean to be Asian American or Korean American when oftentimes you're kind of told because you're adopted, you don't get to claim that. Um, so I would say that it's still a work in progress, but that also the past couple of years has really been an emphasis on understanding who I am and making peace with who I am and my history and trying to put a lot more energy into healing. Given your just amazing background and sort of the influences that you've had, how did you find the love of teaching? Like, what did you want to be when you were young, Liz? Uh, what, what sort of influences did you have? Because I, I, it, I don't know, everything makes sense in hindsight, but was there a pivotal moment where you wanted to be a teacher or how did you fall in love with that? Absolutely not. Definitely not. <laughs> when I was in <laughs> elementary school, I wanted to be the Yellow Power Ranger for a while because she was like the only Asian person on TV. You had like Claudia Kishi and you had the Yellow Power Ranger, you had Trini, and like that was really it. Oh, we had Shelby Wu also on Nickelodeon. I remember that too. Um, I wanted to be uh, Mia Hamm. I wanted to be a professional soccer player. I played the flute for a number of years. I wanted to be a concert flautist. I also wanted to be like a photojournalist. Um, I didn't figure out that I was even interested in education until like halfway through college. One of my roommates ran an after-school arts program called Arts and Kids, and we would go like do art projects once a week with elementary school kids. I went to school in St. Louis, um, and I also worked with an organization called Each One Teach One, and so I went and tutored middle school students like once a week, and just really enjoyed being in schools and like working with young people, and it was just really fun. Um, I was scheduled to graduate a little early, like I had all my credits and requirements finished. Um, so I ended up tacking on like a children's studies or education minor. Um, and when I graduated in 09, like peak recession, great time to find a job. Um, education was still hiring. So I started teaching through AmeriCorps. I moved to Oakland, California, and I taught um, for two years there and in an after-school program and also did um, literacy intervention during the day in school before moving to LA. And I decided that, you know, this is it. I really love this. I want this to be my like long-term career path. Um, moved to LA to get my master's at UCLA. I taught fifth grade in Watts for a year and then got hired as a founding lead teacher at a startup charter in East Hollywood, where I taught first through fourth grades for about seven years. Um, ended up taking a year off. I moved back to DC this summer and I'm teaching middle school sixth grade for the first time. That is awesome. I, I think that, I mean, you couldn't have 
figure that, right? Because of where you grew up and then sort of the influences that you've had that you would take this West Coast tour and, you know, teach in areas um, wildly diverse. Um, Oakland, Watts is obviously uh, a predominantly black and brown area that's very underserved. And yeah, we actually had another guest on, you know, Yure Moon, who taught down there uh, through Teach for America. And coincidentally, she's also a DC person. Uh, she's a professor at Montgomery College down the way. Yeah. Oh, cool. So Yure, if you're listening, hello. Uh, <laughs> tell us about sort of the identity journey through teaching, because you taught in very diverse areas, or I guess, you know, areas where there were programs designed to support uh, underrepresented or underserved areas. You're a Korean American person from a Jewish family, uh, educated in DC and in, you know, St. Louis. How did you want, or how did you get interested in that? Like what were outside of the actual act of education, which is the function of teaching, but just topically caring about the things that we know you for today. How did that come out? You know, when did that become a fire for you to want to teach about the things that matter? I think, you know, issues of justice and injustice have always been something that I care very much about, but my lens and my approach to this work has evolved a great deal since I was a kid. Um, I attended a Quaker school here in DC from like pre-kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. And so there was always an emphasis on like community and giving back and like philanthropy, but it really wasn't until, you know, after I graduated college where I started to realize like, you know, it's great to have this emphasis and like hold this importance on these issues in my life. But I think I've also been coming at it from a perspective of like saviorism and paternalism um, and elitism and classism. Um, and that was something really alarming once I started to unpack um, and really wanting to dismantle within myself. Because truly, when I started teaching, I had no idea what I was doing. Like, I'm a Korean American kid from the East Coast. I don't know anything about like the history of Oakland or the history of like Watts in LA and just having to be extremely aware and wanting to learn more and more about the history of the places I'm teaching and also try to view my students through what we'll call like an asset-based lens rather than using language that focuses on what kids are lacking and what communities are lacking rather than seeing like the amazing places that they are. Um, you know, like when we use labels like ELL, like an English language learner or students with special needs or like Title I even, like there's a lot of stigma that comes with it instead of looking at what kids and communities are already bringing to the table that more like white and affluent areas might not have. Because I can tell you that the sense of community that I felt teaching in Watts, I have not felt anywhere else. And I have taught in more affluent areas um, after that experience. Um, and also just figuring out like the intersections of my identity and also how those change depending on the context that I am in, because being a Korean American teacher in here in DC, even though like I spent the majority of my life here and grew up here is still different than what it means to be a Korean American teacher in West Oakland or East Oakland. And is very different than being a Korean American teacher in LA, especially if I'm serving predominantly black and brown students, considering the history um, and the relationships and the tension between the Korean American community and the black community there. How did you learn to deal with that? Because let, let's take that specific example, right? You're in teaching in LA in both Watts and Silver Lake. And, and from the videos that I saw, it's a very diverse group of students, right? There, there's deep history of Korean Americans, unfortunately. And a lot of uh, folks in our community will, will point to a singular date, which is you know April 29th, 1992, as the day that tensions erupted, but it goes deeper than that. And it's 
economics-based, it's immigration-based, it's policy-based. And then for you to show up to a school in Watts, what, what did you learn about yourself and I guess, you know, more importantly, humanity through teaching those students and in, interacting with those families during that time in Watts? Yeah, I mean, I think theme that has really stuck with me and I certainly carry throughout my work to this day is that the importance of knowing yourself, like your identity and your place in the community is crucial. Like in, for any educator working in any environment, um, and especially if you change schools, if you change locations, like those things also change too. Um, I would say that my the learning curve was very steep. Um, there was a lot of reading, a lot of watching, a lot of listening that I needed to do to catch up. Luckily, the program I was in at UCLA was also really focused on developing community educators, like people who would be part of the community, understand where your kids are coming from, understand the context that you're teaching in. Um, because there was also so much erasure in my own education, like Asian American history was really never taught. And especially growing up in DC, which is so far from the West Coast, they're not going to be talking about like the Watts riots. They're not going to be talking as much about like the like, internment incarceration of Japanese American citizens. Like those were things that I knew of, but just became so much more relevant and real as soon as I got to California. And I felt like very cheated, like very upset that, you know, I had gone out my entire life and never heard of Fred Korematsu or Yori Kuchiyama or Grace Lee Boggs. Like, why did I have to wait until I was in my twenties to figure out who these people are and like what my life would have been like if I had role models like that growing up? So I think I totally diverted from your question. About no, no, no. It, it's important. Because <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you from the perspective of somebody who was born in Korea and came here uh, at eight and, you know, who, whose parents uh, still probably identify themselves as Korean in America and not actually American anything. You know, those things were also not encouraged to be learned because to them it wasn't their history, right? And if you obviously, most people know that if you don't identify, and, you know, I think I think our parents' generation um, or older Asian American is, isn't thing that they aren't even aware of. Like, like, why do we have to bundle it? I'm Korean, they're Chinese, they're Vietnamese. And so to understand the histories of the inter-Asia wars and things that have happened there, you know, things like the, the camps that, you know, America sent the Japanese Americans to internment camps, the, you know, stories of Bruce Lee or Vincent Chen, like those aren't, those weren't our stories in a Korean American household. Those were Chinese American and Japanese American stories. So it was already even othered even within the community. And so what do we learn about Korean? Like what is Korean American history? And that's such a small sliver. And so even that's very hard to tell, but immigration stories tell us that, you know, the mass wave came in the sixties and seventies. So like there wasn't really enough, you know, story was still being written. And so, yeah, Asian American history. I didn't even even take Asian American studies in college. I went to USC where there was a robust catalog of, you know, classes that you could have taken. But I opted out and I was like, why would I want to spend time doing that? Right? Like I'm supposed to study business and, you know, assimilate into white business culture and then be a really powerful and rich executive one day. Like that was the goal. Right? Like that was what at least my parents probably wished for me after they quickly realized that uh, doctor lawyer engineering was not in my future. 
That's so Cause funny because I, I feel like we had like opposite experiences because like growing up adopted, I was so desperate to make up for like lost time <laughs> in college. Like I told you, my my minor was in education, but my major was East Asian studies. Like I went hard for like, <laughs> I'm going to study like Chinese and Japanese and in Korean history. I took Korean language for like three years in college and like can order food and I can read, but like all of my Korean friends are like, you sound like you swallowed a textbook. Like no one talks like that. Um, <laughs> but I was just so desperate to compensate for what I knew I had missed. Um, I, I can't, you know, when, and if I, I know these folks are going to listen. So, you know, Patrick, KJ and Nathan, I, I think you guys resonate, right? Like it's just, I, I think, and they would share with you at least some of them that you found that early, you had the opportunity to discover that early. Right, because um, the term that a lot of folks use is coming out of the fog, but that doesn't happen for some folks well into their thirties. And for you to, you know, take the opportunity to learn about all the different Asian cultures and to even have spent some time in Korea during college, you know, I, I think that was fundamental and help fundamental in helping you sort of identify and, and even learn. Tell, tell us about that. How, how was it going back to Korea? And you know, when I see the name Dunopi, it gives me some some sort of. Uh, weird feels because I think a lot of uh, Korean American kids, whether it was Kumon or Nunopi, to give context, it's the, uh, the after school factories that we were sent to, to learn math and, and reading comprehension. Um, <laughs> what was that like? And then outside of the work environment, like what did you learn? How did you spend your, your off hours in, in Korea? It was an experience. Um, so it was between my junior and senior year of college, um, because I was an East Asian studies major, I could apply for this summer program where I had an internship. Um, they'd pay me. I had a homestay family. I actually still keep in touch with them because they are like the loveliest people. Um, and so I went, I was an intern, um, and spent my time editing English textbooks, which was not the most like thrilling work, but I got to be like pretty close with three of my like female colleagues. And, um, it was just, such like a mind melt being there, being in a place where I looked like everybody else, but just kind of lived in constant fear that someone would ask me a question. I'd have to open my mouth and like out myself that I wasn't like, I don't know, whatever their idea of like Korean enough might be. Um, I think it's really funny because I'm pretty sure because my name like Liz or Elizabeth Kleinrock has definitely not an Asian feel to it. Um, I think my host brother was super disappointed that I wasn't a white girl <laughs> when I showed up at the airport. <laughs> like he was really, really hoping for someone different. It's just like, oh my God, it's just another Korean girl who's going to come got, live with us. got one of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was really fascinating. Like, I feel like it was really necessary for me to try to understand like where I came from. Um, like my ancestry and my roots. And I feel really lucky to have had that experience, but it was also really challenging because I wanted to do everything I could to try to assimilate. Like I wanted to fit in so badly and I'm sure he's not listening. We've not spoken since college, but I had a Korean boyfriend um, who was a Korean international student, came from like a very upper crust Korean family and woo, I did not fit in uh, within his life plan, according to his parents. Um, they wanted him to be like set up or like introduced to somebody of like the same socioeconomic status in Korea. And even though like I have like Korean blood, 
would never be culturally like Korean enough. I was too loud. I was too tan. Um, I wasn't feminine enough. He used to make comments about how like I should wear different makeup or different clothing. Um, and because I think I was also so insecure and trying to figure out who I was, I was just like, okay, I'll, I'll change what, what's on my face. I'll change what I wear. Like, yeah, I just, I really so desperately want to be seen as like one of the people. Um, and clearly that was not the case. So it, like I said, was an experience, but I was also able to travel back to the town where I was born. Um, I'm from Iksan or like Iri city. And it was very surreal, like getting out of the car, being like, wow, this is where I could have spent my entire life. I mean, like it's, it's a pretty rural area of Korea. Like produce is great down there. Um, and I have no idea what my life would have been like, but it was very strange, like getting to revisit that, you know, possible trajectory. And I just went in a different direction. I, I will. And thank you for sharing that. First of all, I, I will say that that upper crest, extremely judgmental and narrow-minded community that we see in dramas far too often is the community that I don't think anybody should strive to want to be accepted by outside of race or culture. It's pretty toxic and not nice. They're just mean. I mean, looking tiny, back, tiny it box. definitely does play out like a K-drama <laughs> without the happy ending. There was no like, I will like spurn my family to be with you. It was not, it was not like that at all. It actually does, right? Like it's, 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 a. I mean, it could be a, it could be a synopsis for a Korean drama, right? Um, <laughs> an adoptee Korean girl finds somebody in college randomly. And again, it's not the happy ending that those folks can write in, but it, it, it does have some of the elements. And I think it does. I'm sorry you experienced that. Cause I, you know, the judgment within our Korean culture and Asian culture is so bad. And, and I think it's something that we are talking about more and more now, what does it mean to be Asian American? who gets to speak for the community, about the community and, and stand up for the community. And we've had similar conversations with friends who are mixed race. And as far as I'm concerned, you are 100% Asian and 100% whatever else you are. You know, the, the notion of have something, I think it's, you know, like the, what you talked about, you know, asset-based versus diminishing language. Like why is somebody half a human of anything? Like you should enjoy both cultures and that's rich and, and that's an asset. You know, and, and another community of, of ours, and there's hundreds of thousands representing this community and a significant part um, of at least the Korean American diaspora out here in America is the adoptee voice. And unfortunately, uh, so many members in our community and, you know, uh, especially the, the the straight East Asian dudes that look a lot like me, you know, come and dear these spaces and say, hey, you know, and whether it is to our mixed race friends or our adoptee friends, they say hurtful things like, you're not enough that you don't have a right to speak up for that. And I think that's bullshit because who gets to define that? We're all fighting for the same thing. We're fighting all against the same thing. And I, I think, you know, I've learned so much about the experience and it's really never my place to speak for the adoptee community, but I will always speak up for the adoptee community because I don't understand and I'm always learning and I have no idea what it, meant to grow up the way you did. And I don't know, we, we've got a lot to, you know, make amends for, because I think also the way that I was taught to think about adoptees and other Asian cultures from my very traditional and then conservative Korean household, like I needed to, I'm still unlearning a lot of this stuff that I don't 
and, you know, I got kids and I'm thinking about how I'm going to explain all of this stuff to them. And, you know, so anyway, I, I think it's the, the experience you've had, I think, perfectly prepared you to speak up for all of us now and to teach. And as your, as your uh, account and your business aptly says, it's not just to teach, but to transform because, you know, teaching doesn't matter if it doesn't affect in anything, right? As we always say, like, what do you want them to do? What is the so what? What is the takeaway? What, what is the action that we seek from the people who are listening to our stories? So I, I love to learn, you know, so we, we've got a good understanding of, of your background and everything that you are passionate about. Most elementary school teachers don't get so vocal about social issues. Most, and I say most, <laughs> I don't want to blanket, and, and most don't share as widely as you started to four years ago on social media about the things that you did or things that you were teaching. How, how did you, how did that come about? Was it a matter of frustration that you needed a larger platform to just share out what you did? Was it to inspire fellow teachers? It was neither yeah, because of those you, things. It was neither of those? What, what, I mean, what, was, was, what was the impetus? I was engaged in the work and I just kind of got the sense that like people on my personal Instagram or Facebook were like sick of me posting about like social justice <laughs> and teaching related things. And I was like, I think I need to compartmentalize. Um, and also just not knowing like very many like-minded educators at the time. I was like, okay, I'm gonna start this separate account. I will hopefully make some new friends and like connect with people who are like interested in the same things. It was really just a place for me to like post about teaching and like books and stuff like that. It was not the page <laughs> that it is today. Um, I don't know. I feel like, you know, there are people who get paid a lot of money to be like really strategic about social media. And I'm not one of those people, <laughs> though it might appear that way. Like even the name, like, you know, the idea of transformative work through education is something that really, really matters to me. But like the name of my page was like came up like during a four hour CPR training where I'm like with my friends and be like, okay, like what has alliteration? And also the domain name is also free that like still works. That's important. Um, and that's pretty much how it worked. <laughs> I wish it was like a more profound story than that, but it is not. Um, but like started sharing things and like what I noticed, um, on what we'll call like teacher gram for quite some time was a lot of people like sharing books, but also like reposting other people's materials. And what something that I'm proud of from my page from the start is that what I make is, is original. Like the lessons that I do with my students are things that I come up with that I execute with them that I can then reflect on and share out. Um, so I try to generate my own content versus sharing other people's things. I mean, I'm all for like elevating, amplifying other people's work. Um, but when it comes to what I'm teaching kids, I want that to be something that comes from me and also something that I have tried and practiced. So I can also tell folks, don't do this. This really didn't work and do more of this instead. This seemed to go over really well. So I went back deep into your Instagram and the thing that I am most excited about is that you wrote out Tupac lyrics and threw it up on your classroom wall and then Instagrammed about it. That I think, <laughs> and, and that I think is, is the coolest thing. Cause I think it sort of shatters this notion of what is academic material and we live or I grew up at least. And as I'm sure you did, given where, you know, you were educated formally of what in essence is a lot of whitewashed academic material to say, that's not teaching material. That's music, that's rap, that's pop culture. That's not, you know, even outside of the context of what we teach, how we teach it and, and, and some, of, some of the stories. 
Because what is rap? It's poetry. It's just mm-hmm. presented differently. And so yeah, we're while doing we poetry can, now. I love it. it. We're actually using Tupac's poem. We're using the rose that grew from concrete next week, like on Monday. I'm really excited. That is awesome. It, it is because that's, and, and who are we to judge how somebody expresses their same beliefs because we think about the same thing. And so that's beautiful. I mean, so as, as a, you know, fellow content creator, one, like the dot-com thing is so important. I've spent many, many hours, hours, hours on namechecker.com to make sure that all the handles are available. Dears the Americans, actually, I landed on after months of searching because it just hit me <laughs> and I was like, holy crap, everything's available. Uh-huh. <laughs> the only thing is Twitter cuts you off at 15 characters, but I didn't really care. And so <laughs> you, you grab it as fast as you can. How, how did you maintain the, the drive? So, you know, because I, I think it's not, it wasn't your day job. You're a teacher and you still are. This was an outlet for you from a professional perspective to share and to build community. And I think, you know, people will look at your account now and saying, oh my God, she's uh, somebody of influence, somebody who is leading a movement, somebody who speaks for, you know, all marginalized voices. But in its early days, like, how did you, you know, in addition to the content creation, um, what were your, some of the thoughts around what, what did you actually want to have as the impact of you creating content in this uh, for Teach and Transform? Sure. So like in a lot of the facilitation and like professional development work that I do, like my number one goal is to show educators examples of what anti-bias and anti-racist work can look like with young people, because I feel like being able to concretize it, to be like, this was the lesson. I can share the things I said, the questions I asked, the types of responses students gave to take away kind of like that, that initial scary factor. If you're a teacher who's like newer to this work, Like I want to show how accessible, how easy it is to get started and how excited kids are to engage with it. And maybe teachers just don't know because they haven't tried it yet. And I think from the outside, if you're new to it, it looks really scary and it looks really intimidating, but it isn't like this work is so much easier with kids than it is with adults. You know, in the process of learning and unlearning, kids have a lot less to unlearn. Like they obviously still have biases they need to dismantle and unpack, but it's not the same as, you know, a teacher who's been doing the same practice every single year for like 30 years and has no interest in changing or like examining why what they're doing in the class might be problematic. Um, So I really just wanted to show how accessible this work can be and how exciting it can be too. Before, let's talk about before the last year where as a result of really unfortunate stuff that's happened in the world, you've gotten very busy on Instagram and have gotten very popular. But in its earlier days, who are some of the people that were reaching out? Because um, again, the context of you being you, Liz, and, and teaching in Los Angeles, where it's very diverse, and in the area that you taught at Silver Lake, even more diverse, and, and it's sort of the first layer of the urban area. What what I think about is how do teachers in the middle of the country, in school districts that are extremely homogeneous and, and not diverse at all, I worry about how they teach this stuff because the stereotype is that they, you know, they don't know how because it's not their lived-in experience. What what sort of conversations were you having with teachers both near and far about teaching this stuff and, and sort of taking the charge on its own? Because the, the things that you were teaching and the way that you were teaching it were not off of standard curriculum. Yeah, I mean, curriculum is tricky because I also got the reputation at my school for like, oh, Liz is like writing her own curriculum. You know, she's developed this curriculum. It's really not a curriculum. And frankly, once you call it a curriculum, if it exists like in a binder or in a script or in a workbook, like 
when you standardize it, it is no longer culturally responsive. It is no longer anti-bias just because there is no one size fits all for this work and depending upon your identity, the identities of your students and also your context, like where you teach, the work is going to look really, really different because the needs, even within Los Angeles, the needs of a school in Silver Lake are different than what's happening in a school in Watts. It is different than a school that's ha- that exists in Northridge. Um, it's all really, really different. And even in my own school, the work is going to look different between my classroom and the classroom right next door because the students are different because the community within the classroom is different. Um, so even for teachers who teach in very like white or very homogenous areas, um, you know, diversity exists on a lot of different levels. Like racial diversity is one kind of diversity. There is diversity within, um, you know, within language, within socioeconomic status, within religion. Um, there's so much to unpack there. And something that I also noticed, um, Every year when we do like identity work um, in my class, if we make identity maps or, you know, talk about, you know, our, our families and our histories and our backgrounds and the things that make us who we are, every single year, there's always like between two to four white students who will come up to me and say like, Ms. Liz, I don't think I have a culture. Like, I don't think I have an ethnicity. Like, what do I say to this? Which also just reflects like, you know, dominant whiteness that it's always so so taken for granted that white children aren't having conversations at home about like who they are and like what is their family's culture, like beliefs and ethnicity and things like that, which I always found to be like really sad too, because I think all students deserve to know who they are and be proud of who they are and where they came from. Um, And I don't know, that kind of just breaks my heart too. You know, this work is for everyone. And I think there's this misconception that it's only for like black and brown students or students of color. It's only for like urban areas, but everybody needs it. Frankly, I think like white homogenous communities need it more than others. Um, And I think that a lot of teachers who work in like predominantly white areas need to just be really mindful of the way that they are representing identities and histories that aren't present in their community or classroom. Um, A lot of teachers, I think, will make the mistake of doing things like, we're only going to talk about Black history within the context of like the transatlantic slave trade or like the civil rights movement or like Jim Crow and segregation in the United States. And it's all so focused on oppression. Like, yes, there is representation here, but if you're only talking about like the worst things that have been done to people. Like there's no opportunity to explore like the joy and power and resilience and resistance that also exists in those communities too. And then you think, well, dang, like sure, white kids are learning about black history, but what are they learning about black history? What are they learning about black folks? Like, I think in my identity as Asian American, what would I want a class full of students who aren't Asian American to know about me or my identity or history? Right. That's important because I think you're right and put it into the Asian American context. What do, what do we talk about, right? We talk about the, you know, the, the camps. We talk about uh, the railroad workers. We talk about the atrocities, but we don't celebrate enough. And I mean, the yes, I, I think it's a both. Um, and what I mean by that is I think, yes, we want to petition and encourage school districts to formalize this curriculum so that we all learn it and my kids can learn it one day. But this start stuff, this stuff has to start at home and this stuff has to start um, within our own communities. And 
I genuinely feel, and, and you deal with parents all the time and um, would love to get your take on it, is that our generation of parents, we are being more charged and we feel more of a, not a burden, but a responsibility and an honor to teach our kids the things that we wish we had learned without relying on the school system to say, well, that's school's job, right? Like our, our mutual friend, you know, Sarah Park Dahlin, like she gives me lists of books I should buy for my kids, actual lists. People aren't watching this on video, but I have an Asian American bookshelf. You know, I get very, you know, not, you know, we are very intentional in the books that we buy for our kids and to make sure that there's equal representation or diverse representation of protagonists because if we focus on the classics, we get a bunch of books that don't look like any of our kids, really. You know, and, and so I, I think that's really, really important, you know, that we're teaching them now and we're teaching them our own way, but also celebrating all the the good. And I think right now, as as we are reckoning with all that's going on and almost having to in some conversations, Liz, I feel like we're having to defend ourselves to say, this has been happening. Our people have been getting hurt for such a long time. Where have you been? But then we sort of fall into that trap too of just like focusing on all the bad stuff that's happened to our people and saying, just to say like, hey, like we've been dealing with this for a long time. So we have a, a right to voice our concerns, but it, then it doesn't really allow for, you know, look at all the badasses, you know, um, astronauts scientists, you know, presidential candidates and people like Patsy Mink like that are not really talked about. We have to sort of right now in this moment, unfortunately, bring out some pain for people to say, oh my God, like, and, and is that the right way to encourage empathy? Is that the only way to encourage empathy is to bring up the past pain? Like, how, how do you see that? Because you've been sharing a lot of things, particularly in the last week about historic, like you, you take people to school, like you source your stuff. You're like, that happened. This is this this is where I found it, and it's not disputable. Like, how, how do you see that, and and where do you see that historical context of uh, tragic events playing in what we're dealing with now? I mean, I think I wrote on Instagram that like this isn't how I want to spend my time. Like, this is not what I want to be sharing with people. I don't want to spend hours like looking up primary sources for like massacres of Chinese Americans like that. It feels awful, like it's nauseating. But I also feel like there is a need and also a responsibility to respond to a lot of the most common types of questions and remarks that are also out there. And I think it just came to a head where I was just so hurt and sick of people saying, well, A, Asians never show up for anyone. That's not true. And that, you know, the only racism Asian Americans experience is like positive, like it's all like positive stereotypes and it doesn't hurt anybody. And, um, oh God, like the implication of like white, like the proximity to whiteness, like Asians are white adjacent. So like, why are they complaining about anything? Like they hold so much privilege and every single time it's just the constant reminder of the erasure of what type of an injustice and impression we have dealt with. Um, like within like restorative justice and restorative practices, like in order to have reconciliation, you have to have the truth part and the truth isn't known. Like people don't know our history. Like Asian Americans don't know their own history. 
Um, and there's so much, especially like as an adoptee that I've had to grapple with in terms of like unpacking my own internalized racism and my own internalized whiteness and white supremacy. Um, and we have to be able to understand what we've experienced and where we've been before we can figure out where we're going. Um, I would much rather spend time talking about like the joy and resistance and resilience and like amazing things that have come out of the Asian American community. Um, but unfortunately, like people just need to understand what we've gone through, like what we've experienced. There's just been so much ignorance there. And I've been thinking about like the Watts riots and what happened in 92 in LA, thinking about the wave of Korean immigrants who came over after the Korean war, trying to understand <clears throat> that all of the waves of not all, but so many of the waves of like the Asian diaspora that have landed like Asians and Asian Americans here in this country have been because of white supremacy and Western imperialism, like looking at the opium war and like influx of Chinese immigrants after that, looking at the US um, presence in Vietnam and like the amount of South Asian refugees who have came over and asylum seekers following the war. Um, my own identity as a Korean American adoptee, looking at how that trend picked up, like how Korea became known as like the international exporter of babies because of the legacy of the Korean War and the U.S. intervention there, that we have to understand all of these pieces too, even though they're really painful. <sighs> That's a lot. And it's exhausting because I think, and I am no, I, I don't want to paint myself as somebody who's been doing it for a long time. Like I continue to learn. I don't know so much. And I, I think one thing that I do know, because I, I've been blessed to have people in my life who have been doing the work for so long is that there's a hundred percent chance we're not going to finish this in my lifetime. And Absolutely so, not. Not your kid's lifetime, truthfully. So, right. So, so it is to, to, to do it in stride. You know, I, I think right now there's also, I, I guess so, so the goal is to try to take the baton as far as possible and hand it off to the next generation. Cause you're not going to finish the race in your lifetime. And I know that there's a lot of angst and just a lot of energy right now to what do we do? You know, who, who do we give money to? Who do we need to support? You know, because people want quick fixes for tough problems. And that's not, we've never had that, you know, us getting Trump out of office and putting Biden in doesn't solve anything materially at the end of the day. It's like not as exhausting wondering what did he do now? But if you look at what deportations numbers look like in the last month, like it doesn't, there's not really a big difference. And so it's, it's the systems that we're trying to change and what is allowed and then where the checks and balances are. I, I'd love to ask you based on, you know, some of the conversations that you've had with peers, with friends, with, you know, people, you know, on your platforms, what can we, what is the best thing that we can do as Asian Americans um, across the entire spectrum to, I don't know, to give the best chance that my kids don't have to talk about this shit in 20 years because it's exhausting. Yeah. I mean, to know yourself, to know your own history. Like I grew up with white parents, but I have heard so many stories from Asian friends and colleagues that, you know, who had parents and grandparents who were put in internment camps, who experienced immense discrimination, like no matter where they lived in the United States, but it's never talked about. And like, you know, there is knowledge that these things happen, but not in detail and not how it impacted folks, family members, how that that type of generational trauma just ends up getting passed down if we don't take the time to understand and heal from it. 
and how important that is when we're not just thinking about anti-racist work, but if we are in the business of liberation, then that is something that needs to be front and center. And I would also say that making sure that we're not ignorant about other people's histories um, and experiences as well, like going back to like the Watts riots, there is also an immense amount of ignorance within the Korean American and Asian American community about anti-Blackness, about the history um, within the United States, what Black folks have experienced, how our entire economy as a nation was built upon the labor of enslaved people. And if you don't know that, you're going to continue to be biased, be prejudiced, and just write it off and just not know. So being able to know yourself and making sure that we are taking the time to educate ourselves about other identities and histories and also see where they're intertwined because ultimately, you know, our liberation is intertwined. Like we have to try to support one another. This is not the oppression Olympics. It's not about who has it worse. Like we can't go back to the whole like tit for tat thing every time. Like we need to sustain ourselves and we also need to sustain each other. What about this notion though? Because I hear it from my own parents and, and so many, you know, what's wrong with getting ours, right? It, this, this topic comes a lot on, you know, school admissions uh, when it comes to merit-based stuff. Um, it's a hot topic with Lowell High School in San Francisco, with New York City and the specialized high school system and then all the high school, you know, the college stuff that there's a lawsuit about every now and again, affirmative action in, in essence. And then there's, it, I know it's rooted in the myth of meritocracy and the fact that if only we study hard enough, go to the right schools, get the right jobs, live in the right zip code, that somehow uh, we won't be victimized, that we are somehow exempting ourselves from being uh, victims of racism because we're rich enough or we're smart enough. And then there's this notion that in our in some parts of our communities that what's wrong with that, right? Like what's wrong with making a lot of money and what's wrong with, you know, taking care of my family, my immediate family and saying, you know, everybody's got to fend for themselves and, and taking this weird you know, isolationist stance and, and not caring for your, your fellow man, your fellow human. What it, it, cause it's a frustrating conversation to have because it's, it ends up in offending them or saying that, they, you know, and, and so what, what are your thoughts there? Because I, we, I've had way too many of those conversations where, you know, it seems it's a very zero sum game, right? If I have to give up, you know, if, if we want somebody else to win, that means I have to give up something and I work too hard and I just can't stand for that. I would say first that if your opinion is, it's just about me, like getting what's mine, I would counter that by asking what happens if everybody says that? Like, what would the ripple effect be in our community if everyone is only looking out for their own interests? And frankly, like, we are living in a capitalist country, so we see exactly what we get. And looking out there, it's not great. It's pretty terrible. Um, so that would be my first point. And my second would be to really try to examine and unpack this idea of scarcity mindset, which is also a product of white supremacy, that there is only... There are only so many resources. There's only so much freedom. There's only so much liberation to go around. And that's not the case at all. Um, so I feel like those would be the two points that I would try <laughs> to bring up. But clearly that's also easier said than done most of the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I truly believe we can all eat. And somebody's, you know, th there are certain things in life where it is a zero-sum game, right? But for, for all the things that matter, Humanity, access to healthcare, basic human rights, 
the things that our country is supposed to stand for. They're unlimited resources. It's just a matter of how we're going to divvy it up. And I think it, it starts with, you know, like you said, learning about ourselves, having these difficult conversations. Um, and we've had a lot. It almost seems, you know, uh, we're going from recording to, you know, upload in less than 48 hours on this episode. And I'm really glad we're doing it because <laughs> if this was a two week gig, like the world could have changed, right? What, what, how many more attacks, how many more movements and, and what context has changed and, and what we have to talk about because it takes all of us, right? And I know that as of late, there's been a lot of attention on, you know, uh, celebrities who I'm grateful for because they have platforms and they have friends at media companies that can make waves and, you know, activists who've been doing the work and the nonprofits and everybody's doing stuff. What, what I want to, where, where I want to go next and, you know, sort of focus on as, as we wrap up our conversation here, Liz, is what about the kids? I'm a parent. You're a teacher. We're, we're in an oddly fortunate situation where uh, our, our son is four, our daughter is two. We pulled them out of preschool when COVID happened and, you know, we, we have not had to send them back. Here in LA and in many places around the country, schools are going to open up again. Um, hybrid learning, in-person learning, it's twofold, right? There's the, the health concerns and obviously of just the social disconnect and um, some of the mental health disorders that we have far become too uh, aware of. But there's this new scared scare of racism. Parents are scared. Teachers are ill-equipped. What, what, what do, how can we best prepare our parents who in turn can best prepare our children to be ready for it? Because to ignore it isn't the solution. And then to fight back with just as nasty words also isn't. What, what, from the perspective of somebody who does this training and, and is a teacher, um, what are some words for parents you can share, Liz? I think for parents, if it's a concern, sending your child back to school, making sure that you're communicating with your child's teacher, possibly with the administration at your school too, to let them know, hey, I'm not sure you've been paying attention, but there has been this recent wave of anti-Asian hate crimes. I'm curious what you have prepared or what you have in mind if any similar issues come up at school. So not like accusatory, but just trying to probe them to be proactive about it. And if they haven't thought about it, that communication will get them started thinking about it. Um, for parents or for educators who want to get started on this work, um, Teaching Tolerance, which recently changed its name to Learning for Justice, had a really great um, article and resource um, about speaking up um, in the face of COVID-based racism um, that is available online for anybody to check out. Um, the organization Asian Americans Advancing Justice also has like a full-on curriculum of really amazing Asian American history that like a lot of folks don't know about. If you also Google the Asian American Racial Justice Toolkit, like there are also some really great resources there. Like there are things out there to support caregivers and educators. It's just not super widely known. Um, but I would also encourage parents and caregivers to talk to their children. Um, I know that there's always this delicate balance of wanting to have your kids be informed and prepared, but not like scare them or traumatize them. Um, everything that I do in class around anti-racism always comes from like an inquiry-based perspective. So it's all generated uh, based on children's prior knowledge and the questions they have. So you can ask your kids, have you heard anything about any of like these tax on Asian Americans, like what have you heard? So you can also clear up misconceptions if they have things like totally wrong 
Um, and that way it'll give you also an idea of what gaps you might need to fill in as the parent or the adult in the family. Um, making sure that we're focusing on like the broader issues rather than like getting into like really graphic, awful yeah. like details of like violence and like folks being killed and attacked. Um, and also unfortunately preparing your kids to be proactive. Like if a classmate makes a comment, are you also preparing your kid to know like what they could potentially say or who the trusted adults are that they can go to, to report something like this? Um, so it's a lot, but there are resources out there for folks and people are free to um, contact me if they have any questions. Like my, I try to be very choosy about my DMs, but for Asian American parents who are struggling with this, they are definitely open. And I've also discovered that I am a professional friend hype man. So going to hype you up here, Liz. Liz provides so much content and valuable resources to the world. And even though she has a day job as a teacher, she puts in so much work. And I, I will be just very blunt. I, I do not have even the audacity to even want to think about creating the content at the level that she does. It's exhausting. It is actually exhausting because it's, imagine writing a college term paper and then making 10 Instagram squares out of it. <laughs> That's what every post actually is because you have to cite your sources. You got to cover all the bases. You got to fact check. You got to read. You got to watch. And so I want to encourage all of the folks listening to let's actually, you know, help support Liz continue to do this. She's got a Patreon program. I joined today. If you are still working, if you have a little bit of resources and it's actually not a whole lot of money, it starts at five bucks. It's a cup of coffee. It will actually allow her to free up some of her time from other obligations to continue to do what she's doing. You get immediate access to all the backend stuff that she's created, um, newsletters, FaceTime, every, you know, it's there. And, and, and especially to our community members who happen to think that commerce and community cannot intersect, I want to share with you that so many of us in the Asian American media business are tired. And this is not a woe is me. But if you talk to Benny at Next Shark, if you talk to Ty at Asians Never Die, um, all these people who've provided information, laughs, community over a long period of time, you know, they need your help. And so whether you work for big tech and you've actually gotten richer over the last year or you don't know what to do. I've had so many friends, Asian American and our allies saying, how do we help? I want to cut a check. Companies have reached out to me and said, we want to do a big fundraiser amongst our employees and do a company match and give it to somebody. And so that's a part of the equation too. A lot of the folks that are finally getting their shine, but they've been doing the work behind the scenes and on the streets for decades, let's put money into their pockets so they don't ever have to worry about it ever again. For, for all the unfortunate reasons why we've come to this moment in our collective history, let's make sure that there's endowment levels of support behind the people doing the work so that I don't want to ever have this conversation again, all the ugliness that's being thrown at our community, but let's make sure that the work is being done so we don't ever have to talk about it again. But that's going to take a lot of work. And so we're going to plug in all the links. You can head over to Teach and Transform and, and, and find your way to um, her, her Patreon page. Hell, you can even just Venmo her, whatever it is, because she's got that on her webpage too. And You'll literally she's, be she's laughing the whole therapy. time I'm doing this. 
we need that too because you know do, doers got to rest right and and people just i i get it and it's it's become a little bit increasingly frustrating where people you know even on on my page which certainly isn't as as big and i've never been a news person we're a podcast people say why aren't you sharing about this why aren't you sharing about this why not why not and i always say you know who is everybody else and i support them right and if you're if i'm the only asian american account you're following and you're pissed that i'm not covering it then that's you have a different problem there's so many other people doing the work <laughs> right and and so and what i want to do too and then we talked about this entire time is this intra community support if we're frustrated that cnn abc fox aren't covering our stuff then support the people in our community that who are right because nobody's coming for us right and and if we expect white media companies to save us we're falling into the same things of white saviorism that we're trying to fight in the first place. And so let's, you know, will we ever get big as of those, you know, household names? We don't want to actually, we just want to share news within our community and make sure that our people are informed and the allies who want to come on board with us have a place they feel safe to be who they are, but it starts with supporting. And so this, no, this entire episode was not a let's support Liz Kleinrock telethon. She certainly, I, I didn't tell her any of this, but this is what we have to do for each other. At every opportunity, we have to let people know that this takes work, this takes passion, and this takes resources. And liking her account and following her, sharing it, you know, crediting her, where if you're going to swipe her Instagram squares, credit her. We've seen that too in the last couple of days. That's important, but let's make sure that, you know, she's, let's try to take as much stuff off her plate as possible so that she can do this. And so a couple more things, Liz, before we go, um, what, what's on the horizon for you? What, what is coming up? How else we can support? I hope people are on your Patreon page as they hear this part. But like, what is beyond the Instagram? And it's gotten tremendous amount of growth. And we're, we're so grateful that your work is finally being seen by so many people. What are some things that you're working on that is getting you excited? There's like big and little things. I, for something that's a lot larger. I have a book coming out in May with Heinemann Publishing. Um, Pre-order starts in like two or three weeks. Um, it's called Start Here, Start Now, a guide to anti-bias and anti-racist work in your school community. So if you are an educator, if you are a caregiver, um, hopefully there'll be something in there for you. It's really practical. It's based on like my experience in the classroom for over 10 years, like what has worked. Um, it's meant to inspire and invigorate people to get started with the work in their own classroom or school communities. So I hope people buy it. Um, in the smaller scale, I've been in the process of writing this lesson, this social emotional lesson for my sixth graders on what makes a good apology, um, which I, my partner inspired me to start thinking about this after watching the Britney Spears documentary and seeing Justin Timberlake's apology on Instagram and just thinking like, wow, I don't remember ever having like a super practical lesson about like what makes a good apology and like, what's the purpose of apologizing and why is it hard for people to apologize sometimes? And why is saying something like, I'm sorry, you feel that way, like doesn't quite cut it. Um, so I'm excited to like dig into it because kids always have the most fascinating things to say. That's awesome. And I, I know you don't do this work for your yourself, truly selfless in all that you do, Liz, but what does a Liz Kleinrock legacy look like? What do you want people to remember you for years from now? 
Oh, that's such a good question. It's so scary. I mean, I mean, besides like dismantling white supremacy, hopefully, like just chipping away at that <laughs> <laughs> over time. Um, I hope my legacy is empowering teachers to at least get started with anti-bias and anti-racist work in their classroom. I hope that I could hear people say things like, you know, I was really scared, but then I saw this resource you created, or I saw this lesson you posted and it inspired me to try it on my own. And in fact, we took it in a totally different direction. This is what we did. Like, this is how I took your work and I made it my own. Like that would really excite me. Um, you know, there's a lot of work within like the Asian American community, within the Jewish community that I'm really passionate about. I would love to see those intersect more as well. Um, I don't know, writing more too, like hoping to put out texts, not only for adults, but also for young kids, middle grade kids, just to make sure folks see themselves, like everybody deserves to feel seen and particularly coming from like the adoptee perspective and community. Like that's something that I really want to dig into more. Do all of that and more, please, because I think we need it. And and we'll be here. I, I speak for myself and, and our team here. Uh, we'll be there every step of the way to support you because either you got to do the work or you got to support the people who are doing it. There's no, everybody has a role, whether you're in the system or you're outside the system. And no more shaming for what people are doing or not doing. Everybody's trying to do something in a good way. And I wasn't, none, none of us were born into this mindset. And so we're on, we're all on a journey. And so if, if you've made it this far into the episode, please stop shaming your friends, encourage them to learn more and, and to be better and to uh, share. Cause there's a lot of shaming going on, on how did you not know this? I was like, Shit, I didn't know this two years ago either. And so let, let's do that. Liz, I want to end with this, this final thing that we always do here on the show. And so it, it's the Dear Asian Americans letter. We named the show Dear Asian Americans because I wanted it to be a series of love letters uh, encouragement letters and, and thank you letters to our community, to us, from us. And so um, I, I know you've shared an entire episode's worth of nuggets and wisdoms and encouragements, but if you could sum up your most, the thing that you want to speak to our community the most, I'll start. And if you could finish, uh, help us finish out the show by completing the letter, Dear Asian American. You are beautiful and you are seen and you are valued and you are loved and your experience is authentic and nobody can take that away from you. There is no such thing as being Asian enough that we all are coming in from different identities and histories and experiences. And I really think it's that the beauty within the diversity of who we are that makes us so incredible and makes us so powerful. So whatever box you've been trying to fit into, please stop. That's perfect. We're all on a path to find where we feel comfortable being our authentic selves. Um, and I think you found it um, fighting for people. I, I hope you are taking care of yourself along the way. You made a joke about us paying for your therapy. I know oh, that's not a joke. That's real. Not, <laughs> I, I know. I know. It's probably, it's not a joke, um, but you know, pace yourself too. And, and please know that there is an army of people. If you need us to send cases of wine somewhere, like <laughs> let us know because it, it takes, it takes everybody. And, and what we don't see far too often behind the voices that we see in social media is what happens off the screen, off the platform. And um, everybody has lives, everybody has challenges. And so thank you so much especially on such short notice to come and share your story and, and so many uh, nuggets of wisdom with us. Uh, we're going to put wherever you could, you know, I mean, just go to teachandtransform.org and, and you'll find everything. Hit the support button, watch the videos, listen to her stuff, and then please share it out. 
people still don't know. And, you know, for, for all the people that uh, definitely need to hear it. So uh, Liz, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, please take care of yourself. Rest. The journey is long and uh, we are so appreciative of all that you've done, uh, not just in this moment in time, but, but, you know, for years, for, for years and years to make sure that we can have this conversation and especially being who you are uh, to represent all of us is so much more impactful. So just thank you. Thank you so much. It was so great talking to you.